Isadora James once wrote, A sister is a gift to the heart, a friend to the spirit, a golden thread to the meaning of life. Well, it's hard to argue with any of that, but you know what I think she forgot to put on the list? Sisters also make pretty good folk bands. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. of the Chapin Sisters, a band which features my guests today on the program, Lily and Abigail Chapin. Let me tell you a little bit about the Chapin Sisters. So when you move, it's kind of a private thing. I mean, sure, you tell your family and your friends and maybe you mention it on social media, but really moving from one city to another or one state to another is your thing for you and your family. And that's pretty much that. I only bring this up because the Brooklyn-born Chapin Sisters' new single, which, by the way, is their first new material since 2017, is called Bergen Street, and it's about moving. And because it's about moving from Brooklyn to the Hudson Valley, the Chapin Sisters have had to have a lot of conversations about that move and what it means. And for the purposes of this conversation, the what it means part is really what we got to focus on. Leaving Brooklyn really is kind of a big deal for sisters Abigail and Lily because they have very deep familial roots in Brooklyn. Putting it simply, the Chapins are a Brooklyn family, and their father Tom and his five brothers put their stamp on the city with their 60s folk band, the Chapin Brothers. Now, two of those brothers you might recognize immediately. Tom Chapin is a well-known folk legend whose albums for kids are absolute staples. And their late uncle Harry, who wrote the song Cats in the Cradle, He was a beloved singer-songwriter as well. Reaching back further, their grandfather, Jim Chapin, was a well-known and well-respected jazz drummer. So, yeah, music and Brooklyn run deep, and moving away was a big deal, and Bergen Street effortlessly chronicles what it feels like to have familiar geography in your rearview mirror. It's a wrenching, aching, and utterly gorgeous song that's filled with poetic precision, melodic finesse, and otherworldly harmonic bliss. In other words, the Chapin sisters have stayed right on brand. Since 2004, they've put out a handful of marvelous albums, including the Chapin sisters sing the Chapin Brothers, Lake Bottom, and A Date with the Everly Brothers. They've also recorded with Cass McCombs and Sheehan Him, 
and collaborated with Michael Fitzpatrick of Fitz and the Tantrums, as well as Louis Stevens of Rooney. Look, pick any of their albums or EPs and get ready to swoon. Their voices braid effortlessly together and rise and fall with heartbreaking immediacy. Their phrasing is precise. Their delivery is heavenly. And the way every syllable soars is nothing short of spellbinding. And guess what? They're super nice to talk to. So here you go. Me and the Chapin sisters having a conversation right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. Getting fresh perspectives about Brooklyn um, every every sort of life change has brought a new perspective, and that started when we were really young so for me i've I've had so many different phases of relationships with Brooklyn so yeah this this particular move out of it out of the city um created a, a new luster or a new glow um, to, to the place, but also kind of an interesting perspective on our, on our parents and, and aging and kind of moving away. Um, felt like more of a meta kind of big picture perspective, a pan out. A pan out. Abigail, for you, that. Yeah, well, we, um, I think Lily alluded to it. We grew up in Brooklyn until we were, I was five and Lily was four when we moved out of Brooklyn originally. Um, and we moved to the Hudson Valley. And then now as adults, we've just done the same thing with our kids, our older kids are, um, I was, we both have seven-year-olds. Lily moved when Willow was, I think three. And I moved when like the beginning of the pandemic, I just came with my daughter and my husband and we left our apartment and just stayed at my parents' house for a long time because we didn't know, we knew that if we were like away from them, we could never see them. So we instead just potted all together um, and then ended up just like giving up our apartment and ended up getting a house here and up in the Hudson Valley. And um, so, yeah, we have um, definitely have a different perspective. I grew up feeling like we lived so close to the city. We were in and out all the time. Our grandmother lived in Brooklyn, our sort of family home was Brooklyn, and we were there all the time. But now that, so I sort of felt like it it was very much part of our childhood or of our lives and that like where we grew up was very close. And now that it's my home and I have kids and they're like my daughter's in school and I have a baby and we have to drive everywhere and it's a schlep, like going to the city is like much more of a thing than I thought it was <laughs> and that's maybe my new perspective is that um like life in the city with a baby and a stroller and a, like all those things that I just did when I lived there and getting on and off the subway with a baby and doing all the things being at restaurants like all of that seems um really different now that I'm like a suburban mom with two kids <laughs> my father is from the Bronx and but he's lived here in California where I was born and raised, you know, for the last 
50, 52 years. And, um, but he's still a Bronx guy. Like you can't, no matter where you put that guy, he's that sensibility is there. So in many ways, like home is, has less to do with geography and more of like a state of mind, don't you think? Yeah. And well, our, we have this kind of very sprawling extended family that um, on our dad's side that used to come together a bunch of different times out of the year for gatherings. And um, it used to be Christmas Eve, we would all pile into our grandma's apartment in Brooklyn. And um, it, it, it kind of also um, weddings, funerals, different kinds of um, events would happen at this one Grace Church in Brooklyn Heights and, and people would just, wherever you lived, which usually people lived within driving distance, everybody would kind of come there and it was no, you wouldn't blink. You're like, yeah, this is where it is. This is just where we go. Um, when, when our grandma died, that changed a lot, um, but we still have this kind of touchstone out in, in rural New Jersey of all places, but, um, uh, and then, and then lots of different family members around the greater New York city area. But, but yeah, that kind of, um, our dad and his brothers like romping around Brooklyn, we have, you know, all these old black and white photos of them. There's even a playground actually in Brooklyn Heights named after our uncle, which I always forget, but it's about to get torn down. Yeah. (laughs) They're building, they're building like a luxury condo with some, or like, you know, with some low income housing, you know how it goes. That's how New York is. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I know. And that's how San Francisco is now too. Um, I know. Oh, that's, that's really kind of a bummer though. Yeah. It's right. Uh, it's yeah, it's too bad, but that's, I'm, that's just like a lot of the green spaces. It, it was too, the real estate value is too high. Yeah. Yeah. I know. One of the things that I've loved about, you know, I've talked to musicians who are from Cape Breton and, and, you know, small, small parts of Canada and remote parts of wherever. And it seems like the artists know how to find each other. And I know that the Hudson Valley is probably rich with um, artists of all kinds, musicians, um, painters, writers. Have you locked into the artistic community and how um, sustaining are those friendships and those communities for your own, um, for your own, you know, well-being of your soul? That is such an important piece of the life of an artist. We grew up um, kind of in and out of this sort of Hudson Valley, um, are sort of through family ties, um, folk music kind of heritage. The Hudson Valley is anchored around, you know, the Hudson River, which was um, the river that Pete Seeger um, lived on, and he created this this boat called the Clearwater, which is a, a not for profit charity as well, where they, they take this old sloop, which is like an old fashioned sailboat with tall masts up and down the river. And they take school children out on the river to learn about the wildlife. And, um, and it's been a big part of, of cleaning actually the Hudson river and keeping the environmental movement going. And it's inspired a lot of other, um, similar types of, of charitable efforts in, in other parts of the country. But there was this big, there's this big annual festival that we grew up going to called the Clearwater Festival. And um, that kind of 
really like activism rooted folk music was a part of our upbringing and and believe it or not just keeps going up here i mean there's just generational kind of jumping um people who are just out there doing the good work day in and day out and they get together and have these events and and abigail and i have been privy to it and and around it for our whole lives so it's been kind of fun to tap back into that yeah and do you find that it does seem like artists know how to find each other. It really, and I love, I love that where, um, you know, I think we sort of, I'm a writer and I think that having friends who are artists is, there is something collaborative about that. Even though you're not collaborating, there is something nice to hear about people who are creating something, whether someone's talking about their novel or their painting or their new album, um, the creative process is the connective tissue between you. Um, do you find that your friendships are, with artistic sorts of folks? Definitely. I mean, I think that what is so interesting about living a creative life, if that's your only job or if it's not, but that that part is, it looks so different than um, a lot of people's nine to five workday. And um, I know when I was young and um, starting doing this and not working a nine to five job or working, you know, at restaurants or coffee shops or freelance, whatever, um, and feeling kind of like, like all these people are moving ahead in their corporate ladder and I'm just here like babysitting or whatever. <laughs> um, it It is grounding to have other people who are doing the same thing as you because for people, Otherwise, if you're trying to compare yourself to other people, like your trajectory as an artist is very different than people who are on a more sort of, I don't know, in a, in a corporate work structure. Um, and of course, it's not great to compare yourself to like the most successful artists you know all the time and think about it like that. But it is nice to have the touchstone of other people doing creative work and see how that looks, because of course, for everyone, it's really different. But um it, it is on average very different than like people who have a nine to five and what the, what your life can look like for better or worse. And I mean, it's so, yeah. it's very freeing, but it's also like all that freedom is like weighing on you. <laughs> it's all based on your own action. And that is, um, can be really stifling also. Yeah. Lily, your take on that is the same. Yeah. Um, I think just to reiterate the idea of having friends that are that are working on creative projects that are not just the, like Abigail said, not just the examples of the the success stories, but are their own success stories of just how to make your life, you know, fit that into your life because it is a commitment and it is a practice, and having you know people who sh who who share that practice can be very inspiring and and keep you going, keep you nourished. There's also a kind of shorthand, I think, between creative people that they understand. Like, for example, I was talking to someone once and they said, um, they're, they're a realtor out here in, in the Bay Area. And they said, uh, oh, I got a great story for you about my grandmother. And it was an interesting story that had happened to their grandmother in Japan in 1915. And they said, you know, if you want a great grandmother, and they said, if you wanted to write that story, um, I can give you some information. It pretty much writes itself, right? <laughs> And in my brain, I thought, except that it kind of doesn't write itself, yeah. <laughs> right? Like, the, you know, and it's, and they were, you know, it's, it's a very sweet idea that oh, you can just spin some gold, but that's a, that's labor. And that's um, a process that I think sometimes people who are not 
in a creative endeavor. And it's not because they're being rude or thoughtless. They just don't understand um, that it takes toil and years and, and discipline in the same way that their job does too. So I think sometimes having friends who are creative, they get the idea, they understand the way that you have to go into that trench to come up with something that that didn't exist five minutes before. Yeah, I think that is really, that's an insightful thought because I do think that not everyone gets the work that goes into certainly writing. Maybe people understand like seeing a painting that they could never do. You know, like there's, I think everyone thinks like, oh, I could write a book right. <laughs> until they try. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, there's, um, and yeah, and with like folk music or acoustic music, everyone's like, I've picked up a guitar and like, I can kind of carry a tune. Like maybe I could do that. Like if I was, you know, if I wasn't a banker, like I would do that and I would be successful there too, because it's easy or something. I don't, I, I don't think that people think it's easy, but they don't quite like understand all of the, um, yeah, the years and experiences and all the like, you know, they see you on a stage playing for a lot of people or a few people or whatever the case may be. And are like, that is such a fun life. And you're like, think, let me tell you about all the terrible shows we've played and all the like horrible experiences we've had. And the time we drove all night to take to play a show for no people in the rain at a lighthouse and whatever, you know, like there's so many examples of like really challenging times and um People don't necessarily see that and that's fine because like that's part of the that's part of the folklore it's part of the life it's part of the myth and um like now we're I don't know people who know us now maybe don't remember that about us or didn't know that about us but we spent a lot of time in those slogs <laughs> sure did I sometimes don't even remember thought <laughs> some of it out <laughs> the hours and hours and hours <laughs> I used to host these in conversations at, at bookstores here in the Bay Area. And this woman, I can't remember her name, she wrote this wonderful book and she had just had a baby. And she and her husband and the baby, they drove up from LA and they were in the hotel room with her breast milk, right? And she went to go do this reading at this bookstore and nobody came because it was the night the Warriors were playing some important basketball game. And so it was just she and I standing there going, oh my, and I just felt so bad. I felt terrible. And, um, but an art, every artist has had that. I've done readings to, to my father. No one came except my dad. Um, how do you rebound from those situations? And did it ever shake your confidence because it's sort of like a realtor doesn't go to the office and nobody's there, right? It's like, there's always someone there. Did those instances rattle you a bit and how did you bounce back from them? Because we grew up um, always sort of in like this family band, like not, we weren't technically part of the family band, but our dad made um, family music for basically our whole lives. And we always recorded, we were in the kids choir on the, on the, um, on his kids' albums. And um, when he would play at the Clearwater Festival, we would be, you know, up on stage, whether we wanted to or not, whether our like high school boyfriend was there and we were <laughs> so embarrassed. It didn't matter. We had to do it. So um we uh 
we really wanted when we started our band we moved to california we moved to la we were like nobody knows our family here nobody's a harry chapin fan nobody's a tom chapin music fan like no i mean maybe they are but they don't associate us they haven't been watching us grow up our whole lives like at every new york city and hudson valley folk event um so we moved away we started our own thing and we really wanted to pay our dues like that was something that we like really felt was important and so I think the first couple of years we were like yes here we are we're paying our dues here we are in the middle of like you know a snowstorm in the mountains in California and like will we make it to the show I don't know but we're paying our dues <laughs> but um then years later we did some touring where we were um we were singing backups and opening for some bands um, that had a lot of success. And we were like flying from those shows where we were playing to packed sold out shows. And then we would fly across the country to the, to like a red eye after the show to our own show on the other side of the country. And like three people would be there and we wouldn't have slept because we had to go play this show, but it was important to our manager at the time that we make that connection. And then we had to take the red eye back so we could make it. And that everyone else had been on the bus and like had a day off and wherever. And um, so those times were like whiplash. It was like, oh my gosh, we are having these really successful shows. And then these like really awful shows and what, why like why does no one want to come see us on our own um and then um I think by then we were like okay have we paid our dues <laughs> do, do we regret this like, like um yeah need? we had some early we had some early like brushes with you know the fancy LA producer manager label reps that were like we're going to put you on a billboard and we're going to give you this deal with this branding and we're going to here sign this contract, you know? And we were like, no, we would, we, we were freaked out. We, we were like kids of the nineties. So we were like, you know, reading all about getting in the van and doing everything yourself and don't trust anybody. And we were women, you know, we were, I mean, we were young women in a very male dominated industry. And we had, we'd, we'd heard a lot of, tales about you know people taking advantage of you and we just we were we were a little sh afraid to trust anybody at that point um so you know we we made some decisions that that reinforced that i that 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 road right that road traveled that get in the van road instead of the get on the glossy tour with the with the famous opening for the big famous pop star like we didn't want that you know and you know in hindsight um that's that's the road not taken and who knows where we would be had we done it but um it was all about integrity and it was all about following our our true you know calling and and the the school of life kind of that was the the way that we felt we had to go did you have a kind of romantic idea about what Los Angeles would be like and and really just the California idea? I mean, I'm sure you'd been there, visited before, but living there, um, did it did it deliver and did and did and did it also disappoint? Where was it sort of a double-edged sword? I think, I mean, I still when I go to California and I see the like the the 
Pacific Ocean, Malibu, like all of it is so magical to me. The palm trees, the just the names of the towns, like the Spanish names, it all is like John Steinbeck, old Hollywood, like all of it just really, it never disappoints every single time I get off the plane in LA. I always feel that. Um, and I felt that the whole time I lived there, but I moved there like thinking I'm going to like record a couple songs with my sister and my other sister at the time, our sister Jessica was also in our project. And, um, and I'm coming back. Like I was, I thought I was going for like the weekend and then I stayed for the summer and then I ended up staying for eight years. But the whole time I was like next, you know, next season, I'm moving back to New York. Um, and I think that we really lucked into an amazing scene, um, of musicians and artists and people like, when I think of my friends who are like a community of musicians, I mean, it's also the age we were when we were there. I was there for basically my whole 20s. Um, I feel like my community of artists and musicians is in LA. Like that's where everyone I know in LA is like just living their like artistic practice um, daily. I don't know if that's, it's easier there. I think when you live in New York, you think it's easier there. I don't know, <laughs> but whether it is or not, it's like, oh, you never have to deal with the winter. <laughs> you can just make art all the time. <laughs> right. <laughs> but um, but we definitely had a great, a, a great sort of like cradling of our career in LA. We had so many opportunities, so many amazing people, so many just like really great connections. And we have all that in New York too, like plus the community of like elders and activists that we grew up with and folk singers. And that's a whole other layer. Um, but in, in LA, I do feel like there is just, it's just so opposite. Like there's, it's so opposite from here um, and in, in all the ways, like in good ways and bad ways, but it's just like, it's a really nice, I haven't been in a long time because of the pandemic and, um, and just life having not been conducive to going to LA, but I just, I, I love it there. And I love San Francisco too. Like I really feel a connection to California. It's great. But then, you know, we're New Yorkers, so you always end up back here. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, I echo everything Abigail said. I mean, we both had, a, I mean, I was also, you know, around the same age. So in my twenties in LA, I couldn't, couldn't think of a better way to spend those those years. Yeah. We played so many great shows with so many amazing bands and musicians and um yeah, and the people who would come to see us were our our friends and artists and they're all doing amazing things. So, we were very lucky. Who were you guys singing with um, before not going on your, you weren't doing it on your own. Who were you, what bands were you singing with? Well, when I was talking about us flying back and forth across the country, we were like, um, it was when we were putting out our second album, but we were also touring as background singers and opening for She and Him, which is, you know, M Ward and Zoe Deschanel, um, which was so great. And that like such a different sort of style of, songwriting and music than Lily and I tend to do but um singing with Zoe was really really fun and we did it for two album cycles of theirs um and then the first one we opened the shows too so that was really really that was great and we also had just our sister Jessica had just had her kid and left the band so it was really like the first shows we ever played as a duo 
were opening these shows for she and him where there were thousands of people and we were just like okay we're missing that third harmony part and like who's singing jessica's part here and who's gonna sing her song here and um so it was a little trial by fire in that way but with a very very supportive audience they have a really kind like audience base overall and it was really um and the band was great and we just we had a great time doing that but then, yeah, we would have these, like, they would all have a day off in Portland and, like, go do great, fun stuff. And we'd be like, we have a show in Virginia and we're flying after the show. We're taking a red eye. And then we're, like, playing at this coffee shop and no one came to see us. And then we took a red eye back and, you know, made, like, it, that was kind of just our slog at that time. Um, but, you know, we survived. We didn't, Yeah. It was like the most tired we've ever been, but besides maybe parenthood, but you know, at the time it felt undoable, but we did it. Yeah. Those are things that when you're in your twenties, you have that sort of um, buoyancy that you can do stuff like that, but, you know, but like thinking about it now, I'm in my early fifties and it's like, I go, Oh God, it just sounds so tiring. I mean, it felt really awful even then, but we did it. <laughs> oh, and those tours where we would just drive five hours every day, drive ourselves, you know, just the throw two of us in a Nissan. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> throw our guitars in the car, drive, get there, eat something, you know, the venue feeds you because you're on such a strap budget. You just eat like two meals a day. That's it. Like you, you eat in the morning and then you eat at the venue and then you subsist on beer, like Guinness, because it has yeah. more calories. <laughs> right. They sometimes give you wine. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, I just and then we're we're like on the folk music folk music circuit, and when we were in LA, we'd always played at rock clubs. And then when we started touring, we were like, "Oh, the folk music circuit is like, it's like a Unitarian church here and a JCC here, and like you know, like it's a lot of um, places like that. So you're not even playing bars, so they can't even give you booths because you're in a church. <laughs> right. Yeah, <laughs> we get this like we've always had this kind of sort of two sides of the coin career where we'd have like, we'd be playing like the smell and the echo and all these rock venues in LA standing room only with like all these young hip kind of kids, you know, and then we'd go play like a Unitarian church with like people in their seventies. And we had a really hard time figuring out how to tailor our sets for those two audiences because you Turns know, out they don't like the same thing. <laughs> and 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 you're not going to turn down a gig when you're 25 and 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 they're going to pay you. And 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 these were good people. I mean, they these these yeah, these are really incredible people. They'd be like spearheading the most incredible um community activism ventures. And so we would want to be there and we but you know, we had this song that we used to sing when we were in our, on our first record that was like called kill me now and it was just super dark and like really just like you but know. it's a joke it was like we wrote it as a joke our sister was going through a divorce yeah and we wrote a song it, about like yeah. sincerely and it would be very dark and in those situations we were like okay <laughs> they'd be like why are you so sad life's great we were like mm, like yeah. jessica's going through a divorce that's like it's why an art, it's an art experience <laughs> to get into it so like as time went on we kind of took ourselves a little less seriously i think 
you, as you do, you know, as you take yourself really seriously when you're like 22 and you're like, this is art with a capital A and we have to, it has to be this way. And, and then you kind of start to think like, well, all right, these other people have something we, we can, we can open ourselves up to it. So now we're kind of at the point where we can play a show that I think is more inclusive to anybody. And we don't have to change ourselves to be in different places. We just are. And I think we've also become more embodied. Like, yes, this is, we just are, and you can like us or not like us, but there, there's this sort of like early in the career, like the, the fear of the audience or like this idea that you have to please every audience, no matter who they are. It is like a really, um, that was something that we had to decide at some point. And there were, there were nights when we decided not to, I think, or not that we didn't want to please them, but we are what we are. This is our show. And sometimes that was a real fail because at that time it's true. Like we, we were playing like when we played our first, like none of us talked to the audience. We just like played our songs. They were all like three minutes long. And it was almost like a punk, like the punkest kind of like weird goth folk thing you could do all in three part harmony with a banjo, but like, <laughs> like so stripped down, so straight, nobody cracked a smile. And like the audiences were like, what the, what is this? Um, what is wrong Except with these for the these are Tom, These are yeah. Tom Chapin's daughters. Yeah, the yeah. the audience. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, what's wrong with them? <laughs> and um, I feel like I've known you since you were seven and you used to smile sometimes. And we were like, you know, we only wore like white lace, like Edwardian dresses. And we were just like, we were trying to, we had a thing and it worked in our really specific context, which was like in at the smell. Yeah. <laughs> and um, at the Echo, the Spaceland, whatever, like the early 2000s LA scene. And then when we played in New York, it went over great. When we played in San Francisco, it went over great. When we played in like small town, North Carolina, didn't really, didn't really play. So um, now we're just sort of, yeah, I mean, it's, it's been a long time. We've played for so many different kinds of audiences. We've had to win over so many different crowds. So now we know if we're going to play yeah. Kill Me Now, we have to explain it first. And that's a whole other wrinkle to, to, to doing what you do is, you know, the idea that like you sort of have to, like the idea that you have to almost like sell what you're doing on the stage because it is a performance, obviously, but um thinking like, okay, we're in Rhode Island or we're in North Carolina. And do we explain this? Do we pull back on that? And you learn to sort of read the room and kind of, um, but you're right because every every audience is different. I mean, you could, you could play two shows. Um, you could play one night in Charleston and the next night in Charleston and get totally different reactions to the material, which could really throw you off. How, how would you handle something like that? Where you, you thought you had it figured out and then it sort of, it sort of, you know, wriggles free. I think the only thing that works for me is if I feel like we did a good job. Mm. Like over the years, the only the only thing that works for me is feeling confident in the material and feeling confident in the performance. Because if you don't please your own critic, like you're going to feel terrible. And usually the audience is right on that. Like usually if the audience 
doesn't like what you're doing, you probably also know that you weren't doing your best. There are exceptions to those moments. Like when there's a mismatch, like we were describing, like where, where what we were doing wasn't framed properly or wasn't in the right room. But I think I've just learned as I've gotten older, like, I mean, there are, there are technical things that you can't control, which can be really frustrating. Cause if you're ready to do a great show and like, there's like just some horrible sound issue and nobody can hear it or, or something goes wrong. That's like a whole other thing. And that can be really frustrating, but I think it's like the, the, I, I think I've just learned, like, if I like it and I, if I think we did a good job, then I can like sleep well that night, but that's more. I, I agree. I think that, um, at this point, it's like, we've been doing it for long enough. We're old enough to have like a little bit more self-awareness and self-possession. And also to be like, it's not like our third show. And so 33% of our shows have been awful. It's like our thousandth show. So if one's really bad, <laughs> like if people don't like it, like, oh, well, on to the next, you know? Because um, when you're first starting out, each one feels like, that was the night that we were going to get the record deal that changed our lives and it was right. going to be the thing and it didn't happen because we messed up and when I played that wrong chord and the audience, we lost them there. You know, like it was a lot of that. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so it those things, of course you have little little things like that now, but I'm so, it's sort of like, yeah, life life is bigger than that now. It's just like, each show is is just a show like they're they're all important because you're in it at the time and then if they go well it feels great if they go badly it feels kind of bad but you're not like beating yourself up for the next month it's just kind of like eh, that one was kind of okay or like I, eh, we really messed that one up <laughs> but, yeah I think that as we get older I think our ego needs become hopefully they become less and less and we're not as hard on ourselves, maybe in some ways too. I remember when I first started teaching college, I was 27. And if I had a bad class, right, my lectures weren't good, or I said something stupid, um, it would resonate for a couple of days. Like I'd carry it around with me and I would like Google investment banking to see if I would, should change careers. I was so hard on myself, you know, like, what am I doing? Um, I do love the idea of it not landing as or resonating as deeply as it used to. If you screw up, like I screwed up in class yesterday and I haven't thought about it since until now. And so you you let yourself off the hook. You're not as hard on yourself. Um, when you felt that you didn't deliver or you felt you missed a chord back in the old days, would you carry that mistake, what you perceived to be a mistake? Um, would you carry it around with you for a while? Did it Did it kind of darken the day for a bit? Definitely. I can still remember some <laughs> like oh, yeah. 18 years later. I Absolutely. mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or yeah. yeah. Or like the bad set list or the whatever, you know, the joke that didn't go over well, like really, those are the, some of the things that I think about. Like, I can't believe I said that on stage. It came off so awful and I didn't like, it didn't, you know, just those things. Like I said something that sounded offensive and it's not what I meant, but it was in 2011 and I'm still thinking about it, you know. <laughs> I get, I totally get that. Yeah. Lil, is that for you too? Yeah. I mean, it used to be like, I think the only thing that would cure it for me back then was when we would 
when we'd play the next show. I would carry it until the next show. Yeah. It would be like a little warning cloud. Like, will we ever get out from under the, the feeling of that until the next show? And then the next show would be great. And then you'd be on like a high until the next show. And it was like that kind of like chasing that high of like the great show. And, and that goes away too, to some degree. I mean, you like, we can have a great show and not carry that for as long too. Cause you have to, it goes both ways. Like you don't get the high, you, you can feel really good and like, yeah, we did that great. But then <laughs> the next morning you're not like basking in it in the same way that you were when you were younger. Right. The thing you I have, have yeah, you have to, they're, they're, they're related in some really like fundamental way. Totally. And the thing I haven't figured out is if I have two classes back to back and it's the same class, and in the first class, I might make a joke, totally organic, wasn't planning it. It just shows up and the class laughs. And I go, oh, I'm going to do that one again for the 930. And I make that joke in the 930 and it's silence. And in my brain, I'm like, that worked an hour ago. Like, what, what just happened? And I still haven't figured out. It must just be the chemistry of the room is never the same, you know? Um, but it, it's, it's, it's the loneliest of feelings. Yeah. Totally. It does make you think about like scripted comedy and how people are able to like do that same joke a million times and it works no matter what. I don't know. That's a whole other scale. <laughs> yeah, and it, and it still lands. <laughs> yeah.
mentioned the, the phrase getting in the van, which which comes from that sort of Henry Rollins punk rock idea of like, just get in the car, pack your stuff and go somewhere and play your music and sleep on a floor and then go somewhere else again. Um, and I, I do believe that punk rock is a, is a, like an idea. Like I think Pete Seeger um, and Woody Guthrie were punk rock in their, in their ways, especially Woody Guthrie, I think in, in that it's a spirit. Um, did punk rock mean anything to you guys at all growing up? I know that you grew up sort of entrenched in folk music, which I think is at the earliest roots of punk rock. Um, did the sort of the velocity of that music and the sort of DIY element of it, did it ever make an impression on you? And if so, um, what were, who were you listening to? Um, well, one of the first shows that I ever went to when I was um, 14 with my with our other sister Jessica um, because she at the time um, was an adult already she was in her early 20s and um, believe it or not we were I was visiting her and her boyfriend in the Hamptons in you know like West Hampton or wherever out on Long Island um, they were like renting a summer house there and we went to see X play their um, unclogged tour oh yeah which was incredible but it's like all very funny to me I'm like I saw X play in the Hamptons when I was in eighth grade and um and it really really impacted me um and I loved that album and, and then I loved X a lot um but in in term for so for like classic like LA punk that is my ground zero um and but that was also an unplugged like kind of folk music version of X. Um, that was my intro into it, and I just remember like hanging out afterwards and um, chatting with Xine, and sh she and Jonda were so nice to me, and like they were so charmed that I was like a child at their show, and they were really <laughs> they were really sweet. And so I just like always have this very um, fondness for them, besides loving their music, um, which I didn't know that I did until after but did you reverse engineer and go back to the other albums definitely yeah los angeles and wild gift yeah 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 um and then recently i just watched the documentary like a couple of months ago um not remembering the name um i think it was like made back in early 80s and just it, it like brought it all back to me i was like i haven't listened to this in a long time because i'm not listening to x with my seven-year-old she's not interested <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. but it was it was yeah so in terms of punk um and then we were like you know very much all of our friends were like in post-punk like you know late 90s early 2000s kind of um that that scene was very present like in college and for both of us lily lives in a house where a lot of those records were recorded actually that's true oh is that is that right well, yeah, our house was, um, there was definitely some like New York um, kind of like garage, like um, rock bands that recorded here. And like, I think they did the drums in the living room because it got the best echo off the big stone fireplace. And um, yeah, yeah, I can send you some details about it. But yeah, that our house was a studio um, going back to the 70s, actually. Um, it started out with uh, Teddy Randazzo, who was a songwriter back from like the 60s, kind of a, a heartthrob who turned into a songwriter. Um, and then um, Jimmy Webb lived here. 
and wrote some music here and also had some run-ins with the flying squirrels that still live here. Um, we have a lot of wildlife. We're on top of a hill, like surrounded by trees. But yeah, there's a studio right right here. You can kind of see it through the window of- Oh yeah. Head. Um, That's where we recorded Bergen Street. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. And, um, and then, um, Let's see who else. I mean, there's lots of like local musicians who lived here just because it's a house with a with a recording studio in it. So, um, but then uh, Greg Talenfeld is the name of the person who recorded a whole bunch of bands here in like the early 2000s. I mean, he did most of his recording elsewhere, but he did a bunch of that stuff. Um, and he he brought some of the bands here, and they would like stay and record. And yeah, it's kind of cool. Did you guys go to the same college? No, no. Um, but we went to like similar colleges. <laughs> I um, I went to Oberlin in Ohio. <clears throat> yeah, and I went to um, two colleges. I, I started out at McAllister in St. Paul. So I saw some, you know, there was good music happening in Minneapolis that I got to go see. And then, um, and then I transferred to Wesleyan in Connecticut. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, and Abigail had Oberlin where there's the music conservatory and right. Yeah. And lots of, I mean, so many bands come through there just cause it's like close to Cleveland. It's like between Cleveland and wherever, I don't know. It's, it's a good, it's a good uh, spot to see a lot of bands play. When you see bands play or when you hear something new, I was going to say on the radio, but I'm not sure we even listen to the radio anymore, but when you hear new music, can you hear it as a fan? Or are you always sort of thinking about, you know, the sort of practical, fundamental delivery of the technical aspect of it? Like, oh, uh, the voice is doing this, the production is doing that. Um, is it hard to turn off that critical brain or can you just sort of soak in something without without thinking about it in those terms? Oh, it's such a good question. I think the new the newer the music, the more turned on all that stuff is or maybe that's not true maybe the the i when i listen to like the older music like the sort of um the people from a few decades ago i can listen to that but it feels removed enough that it's not possible anymore and that makes it sort of like wash over you a little bit more organically and i think the newer music sometimes hits really hard even more so because you can figure out how they're doing it. And then other times it's like the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain kind of thing. Yeah, I um, I think that it all depends on the context of like when you're listening and what mood you're in and how competitive you're feeling and what like all those things mm. play into it. But um, But I think that if you listen to something and you don't start thinking like, oh, I wonder like who's playing what, or, you know, if you don't start thinking about those things, then that's like a successful song. Like that, if if you if you can just really enjoy it, if it's coming over you and you're not thinking about all that, um, then that is, that is powerful. And that's just like, then anyone can, then, you know, then you're take. you don't want to create music that's like, everyone's trying to figure out like, how did they do this? Like what, you know, like they, you just want the the song to speak for itself. And ultimately um, when creating music, I think that's really important. 
to me that like people not be like oh I'm so impressed by their like what like mic setup or something you know right. like that that's not the most important thing that they hear like that they're not like it sounds like Steely Dan whatever <laughs> like it's perfect <laughs> it sounds perfect <laughs> but like I don't understand what the song is about or I don't you know like I don't remember anything about it but I know it sounded good um because like ultimately you're trying to like get communicate something with the music and it's not just the production I love that you mentioned competition because I know that I have found myself sometimes feeling competitive if you know with a writer or and I'll think like wow they're clear they're clearly smarter and funnier than I am <laughs> and so therefore I hate them uh, but then <laughs> 10 minutes later I go but they're all they're also amazing and I love them um, and I realize it's my own shallow shallowness that's responding at first but and it feels so ugly for a couple of minutes and then you let it go um are you are you competitive in, in a sense if you if you in any way whether it's with yourself or with other people do you have that sort of competitive spirit and maybe that isn't totally unhealthy to have in in the first place I think yes I mean I've had to turn it off in myself because like we sort of have stepped away from music for so long and like we're not chasing the dream in the same way that we did now that we're like parents and we have other work that we're doing and um like I feel like if I was really competing in this game um maybe like I thought I was when I was 25 or 23 or um I would feel the competition more but I do feel pangs like when I hear someone who's like 15 years younger than me <laughs> and like doing what I want thought I wanted to be doing at that time um I feel pangs of like oh, I could have done that or like I hear sometimes I get most competitive with like other sister bands because I feel like we like truly um came up like just enough before social media and our like sister bandness like just kind of missed like it was like just a little before the crest where everyone all the other sister bands came and so um I do. I, I think that that's where I feel the most competitive. I'm like, ah, oh, those sisters <laughs> could have been us, <laughs> but, um, but yeah. Cause when we started our band there, like there, besides like the roaches and the McGarrigals, like there were not sister bands that were like, or playing around the scene. Like, and so we were, we were really an anomaly to everyone who came to see us. They were like, your sisters and you're singing harmony. You've got a banjo. What's going on? Um, so that felt like we kind of like almost like pioneered this thing that then took off without us. And we kind of, you know, we've got our thing, but we never made it to top of the pops or whatever. Right. But like, I just to like, you know, play devil's advocate on that whole concept, you know, I think that this whole idea of there can, there's only room for this many of something is kind of like that there's there's always it's sort of like I think it was put on us a little bit by this society of patriarchy <laughs> I mean I really do so like being female being um the non-majority you know gender in uh, a very male-dominated field I think there is this false idea of scarcity, right? So there's only room for this many bands because um, there's, 
I mean, it's, it's just, it's just blown, that's gotten blown open, you know? And so the idea of there being room for lots of sister bands is like the best news in the world that there used to only be room for one or none. And the idea that this is music that's taken seriously is like the best news ever because it's a big tent. But I just think that the, the music business has been so like, who, what's your angle? Who are you? Where do you fit? Like, how can we market you? Oh, we already have a sister. I mean, we were literally told, oh, I already have this, but we could, there needs to be a, a female this or the, this or that. Mm -hmm. like, we were told multiple times, like we already signed a sister band. We can't have another sister band. Only on one, right? Yeah, we have a sister band. Yeah, or we have a band. They're not sisters, but they're called the Something Sisters. They're not sisters, yeah. <laughs> but we well, can't have another. We go more so, country. Yeah. We might have room yeah. for that. You know, there there was always this this. Um, oh, and don't even get me started on the. You should dress like differently, or you should you should put yourselves on the cover. You need to you know play up the way you look. I mean just all of the ways in which we internalize those messages without realizing it mm. is so damaging to the people anyone realization yeah. that we i mean we are like both we have so many female friends and artists that are that we all so, are so supportive of each other i mean so it's like um it's a sisterhood and and the more the merrier really so it's not like you know I mean, Abigail is being really like, um, like disclosing that part of herself is like a vulnerable thing to do. But the truth is from the outside, Abigail is like the most like loving, bring everybody in person when it comes to her friends. Like she's not, you know what I mean? Like we're, it's, there's always room for more people on the I guess the I guess the train the idea of like the train leaving the station without us is is something that is more like just that thing of being like a, a pioneer in something before it really happens is like a funny feeling, you know, like because yeah. it really was, yeah, yeah, and like I yeah, it's true. I'm not. I don't feel like truly competitive with people and I'm not like wishing anyone harm like I'm just sort of you know I get those pangs where I'm like oh we we did that yeah we did that 20 years ago like people we did knows. this but yeah. nobody knows like we are yeah. yeah because there was we um the closest we came to going viral was um Perez Hilton that's how long ago this was he was Perez Hilton put our song on his blog when it was a huge blog and it crashed not only our website but our entire server from people clicking on it whoa um yeah that's how many people so like if that had been in the era of twitter <laughs> yeah. or tiktok life or... or tiktok or tiktok right life would be different yeah. right so but it wasn't it was in 2007 or 6 or something so um it was before even instagram um it was like maybe before facebook i can't quite remember but um so it, it was just MySpace my ish. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so like, it was just, we had all these successes like so early, but they just, they kind of, it was like, we missed the, you got paid a ton of money to, for a record deal. Like we were just after that and we were just before social media. So like, that's where our, our little um, moment of coming up was. And uh, you know, like the truth is though, that, 
like we have all these, you know, we were talking about before, like the paths not taken and, um, and maybe like the, um, the successes we could have had or whatever, but we went into all of these decisions with our eyes open. Like we didn't, we, we didn't want that. And I think we still don't want that. And that's something we also, um, have watched our family, like our dad has, crafted a life for himself in music that's not like a top 40 musician um but he's nonetheless like made it his vocation and he works every day and he writes songs every day and he plays guitar for hours and he's like works so hard um and it's very it's like a real he's like a real journeyman musician he does his thing all the time and like that is um I think something that we just have learned from like that if you just keep working um you don't have to make like a good jillion dollars one year off one single to like be a successful musician like if you play music you're a musician and um I think that that is something that we have like sort of just followed through like we have done other things um we have another business together um and we have children we have families and all those things are possible because like we've made these life choices but we still choose to make music also yeah and I think about someone like Amy Winehouse who I just loved and still love deeply and I just feel like she's a casualty of kind of what you're talking about in terms of the machine got a hold of somebody who I always maintain she shouldn't have played anything bigger than a 2000 you know, capacity room. She was like a nightclub singer. She wasn't, yeah. shouldn't be playing Glastonbury. And, um, you know, and the, the machine just chewed her up and spit her out and, <clears throat> you know, and was so cruel to her and didn't realize like, or care with the kind of pain she was in. Um, and I think when you're, when you're young, um, these things can go horribly. So we always think about the road not taken in our, in our brains. We always think like it would have been so much better, <laughs> but like maybe it wouldn't have been better. Maybe it would have been dark and and unhealthy. Who knows, right? Totally. I mean, I think we we chose, we chose also like keeping our, our um, you know, our sister Jessica, when she chose to to step out of our band, that was like a big heartbreak, but it also in hindsight, like we're all still really good friends, you know, like um, at, to have sisters and and our brother was originally our manager, but to have like keep the closeness in the families and for us to all have like lives that are functioning um, is is really a beautiful thing. And and who knows? I mean, you know, maybe we would have. Yeah, I, I you can, you really can't. But we do have some a bunch of songs in the pipeline that um, talk about all this stuff. Oh. I mean, really, like this is the theme of, <laughs> of this record is is this kind of precipice of looking back, looking ahead, kind of taking stock. Um, and and you know, we have this one song that came out today, but we have uh, nine more more songs that are in the works, and we're going to be releasing them one at a time, and and they all kind of like touch on some of this stuff. Um, and like, and then the beauty within it, like just having, we both have these children that are like these magical, you know, lights and sources of joy in our lives. And, and just, you know, that kind of spiritual path of just 
being and being okay with who you are and where you are. And, you know, that's hard to do in the spotlight, I think. And it's hard to do on the road. How is your creative discipline? Are you guys, it sounds like you're being very productive in terms of um, getting the work done. Well, it changes a lot. Um, We are good when we have a deadline. Like, I think both of us, um, not to speak for Lily, but at least for myself, like I tootle around and like write snippets of songs quite often, but like actually being like, okay, here's like the verses, here's the chorus, here's the finished product, you know, like those things are much harder. It's like a lot easier to come up with like the little inspiration for one line and the chorus and the chords and like the actual work of slogging through and like making something that's like a finished product is much harder. Um, so we sort of take um a lot of time especially this time because we haven't recorded anything we hadn't recorded anything um before this for about four or five years so we had all these like snippets and then we just made a we made a plan okay we're coming together we're gonna we had our um friend evan who's a producer and player in um, la was coming to town and he just sort of was like i'm coming to town do you have anything to work on and we just like in a couple of weeks, just like pulled together all these songs that we both had kind of, you know, floating out in the ether or some of them were closer. Some of them we played for each other. Some of them we'd never heard before. Some of them we like wrote in that time, but we suddenly we thought we were going to work on one song. We thought we were going to do Bergen Street because that one was the one that was closest to finished when the email came. But then we... um we got to the studio and we're like, okay, well I have, here's a couple more songs and I have this song and I have this song. And suddenly we ended up in the course of, was it just a weekend? I don't, was it four days, Lily? I can't remember. It was short. We recorded 10 songs. Yeah. Um, And they're not nearly, most of them aren't done because um, everyone dispersed and we're sort of working on them one at a time and trying to finish them up. But, um, but yeah, they're like the bones of the songs are there and the, we we sort of like you know while we were tinkering around uh we're like you know fixing each other's lyrics and helping craft things and um so that has been at least at this stage in our life how our creative process works yeah and then you know just to fill in a little bit of that like missing four years between recording um we did we have done like a bunch of recording ish things like it's not like we haven't been recording it's just we've been recording in funny ways we haven't been recording for a studio album like we did 200 live uh, um Mm -hmm. 200 live shows uh during starting yeah starting on um march 17th which was the Tuesday after like the COVID lockdown because we didn't get together for the Monday Um, because we were all potted together. Um, Lily was already in Nyack and my parents, um, my family and I came to my parents' house and my dad, you know, our dad's a folk singer and a children's musician. So we were like, we had little kids who were in preschool. And we were like, dad, you gotta, you should do a Zoom concert for all the little kids who are home because no one knows what to do with their little kids. And so we did it and then we just kept doing it every day. (laughs) Um, And they were half an hour long. And yeah, finally we stopped. We 
cut down like after six months to three days a week and then eventually to one day a week. But then we ended on the 200th show. We recorded some of those songs with our dad because we had worked out a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, it wasn't only kids stuff. It was, I mean, this was going through like all kinds of, you know, news events. We had, yeah, we um, had protest song days. We had, you know, grieving, you know, we would sing like songs when, I mean, it was, it was really like, um, I think a lot of people had those kinds of experiences during those days, you know, we're just communing with, people through the through the screen so they, that was really beautiful and then um we do have a bunch of recordings that might might come together from that and and then yeah we of course everybody wanted um us to you know pe people were filming concerts and you'd send a video or you'd send a thing so we would do stuff like that and we had a bunch of cover songs worked out and a bunch of this and that but we we weren't really um I don't know why we weren't really like working on the original material then. We just kind of put it on a shelf and and focused on, we were learning a million different songs all the time, but they were not our own writing. Well, and doing a show every day, um, it was such <laughs> good practice. Like it made us all a lot more, like we were all really singing well. We were all playing really well. I mean, it was like, you know, there was, um, it was, like a true it was almost like that ten thousand hours thing it was like we were just right. every day playing a show and people were watching it so like it was pretty casual it was like it was kind of like that you know like we were chatting and playing but um it was on facebook live actually and but people were writing in and we couldn't really read while we were doing it but then we would read the comments after and then people were creating community with each other and we were hearing what they were saying and we were reading it and trying to respond to it the next day and we knew when it was somebody in the audience's birthday and we were like you know it was very um it was very sweet and we had a really amazing community um and Lily was pregnant and people knit her baby blankets like I mean it was an, a really amazing um community and we had our little kids and Lily and uh, my dad adopted dogs at the time and they, there were puppies and there was pregnancy and there was a baby and then you know it was just like it was very um sweet and I think a lot of people were hungering for their own families because so many people were isolated and so they were like oh look they got a puppy oh look there's the <laughs> the two four-year-olds have just run through and now they're singing you know it was it was cute um and we were very uh privileged to be able to be together and um and to do that and we, it was something that we could do to keep ourselves busy and it like gave us a purpose which was really nice at a time when like we're artists like we didn't have zoom work to do or like you know thing other things to do right. and it was very stressful time in so many ways so it gave us like a daily practice that that kept us busy and also like thinking about the next one okay today we did a this Woody Guthrie song, tomorrow's Joan Baez's birthday. Let's think of a song, whatever. <laughs> like just right. keeping it fresh, like and learning new things. And yeah. But it allowed you to get the reps in too, right? You got yeah. the yeah. 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 And is your is your business together music related or is it non-music related? <clears throat> no, it's it's a it's a shop. It's a it's a retail store. And it's been in our family since 1986. It was our mom's business the whole time we grew up. And it's out here in the Hudson Valley. And it's a um, like, 
I guess you call it slow fashion, you know, like um, small designers and uh, we support a lot of um, like visible supply chain, right. um, uh, yeah, ethical manufacturing, um, yeah, small scale manufacturing makers, designers. Um, and yeah, our mom did that for our whole lives and then she was retiring. And we had little kids, our first kids were young and um, we lived both in Brooklyn and we were like, oh, we could do that as like a part-time thing. And then that's now our other job, yeah. <laughs> It's not part time. Yeah, <laughs> right. I was going to say, <laughs> not part time at all. Um, and and just to finish up with, do you feel that because putting albums out in that sort of album cycle that is what people do when they're sort of full time trying to be working musicians, putting groceries on the table exclusively, that comes freighted with anxiety and tension and worry um, because that's not really happening for you. You don't have to do, work. You know. You don't think about it that way anymore. Is it also kind of freeing where you go, well, we're going to do whatever we want now and put music out when we want and put it the way we want to do it and when we want to do it? That must be kind of liberating. Oh, totally. I think it's very liberating. I mean, I think a lot of the people who become sort of like the brave avant-garde artists throughout history were like people who had funding or who are independently wealthy. I mean, I'm not saying that that's always the case. There's always the people who, you know, busked for their supper or who, you know, our, our grandfather was a jazz drummer would talk about like going to the diner and eating the free crackers and dipping them in the ketchup water, you know, that that's real too. And all of it is real, but, um, but there's nothing wrong with having a, a separation of, of your income from your art because it can take a lot of the pressure off of it. And, um, I mean, I think the pressure can be good because it can be a huge, it's a great motivator. You know, it gets the work done. Um, so that's, that's always something, but, but it's also really nice to, uh, to find the joy in it, you know, to feel the privilege of getting to get on a stage and sing for people and, and reminding yourself why you started doing it in the first place. And we've been told by some people who are more in the know than us that singles are the way to go anyway, that no one listens to albums anymore. So we're actually like um, hip. So that's good for once. And really, it sounds like you're fine with that's the way the output's going to be. Yeah. And it's just it's it's the way it's going to work for us because we don't have like every other time we've made an album, we've like committed x amount of time and a certain place and a certain story and you know like everything was like it has to everything has to be recorded the same way at the same place and it, this is what this album's about and it's recorded here and the place is important and this is the time and we just don't have that now like it's not only that we work but we also have families and like we're not in a position where we can just be like bye families like here we go for two weeks to Sweden or whatever so this is just the way that we can work and it's honest to us and that is I think overall what we've just if we've learned anything over the whole course of our career is that just like the being the most honest to us is what actually gets the best results like trying to do things that aren't truly us has never really worked mm -hmm. um so just being and it you know maybe it that's true for everyone. Maybe it's not, but, and maybe many people come to it 
like right away, but it took us a little while to maybe realize that. And now here we are and we're just, uh, working, working on, working it out. What a joy to talk to you guys. I really appreciate you doing this. Um, I was really looking forward to it. I've listened to you for so long and I, it was so fun to sit down and spend the almost first day of April with you. And I, I'm really, yeah. Yeah. Likewise. It was really, really a pleasure. Yeah. I think this is our, our first podcast. Is that right? As a duo. Yeah. Right. I think so. I listen to a lot of podcasts, so I felt, you know, it's like a new, it's, it's scary. (laughs) <laughs> to be going out there in the podcasting world it is yeah i know and i know and, and everyone's got one like you know like my mailman's like have you heard my podcast i'm like oh, you have one too. <laughs> we've, we've all got one um but i i um i just i just love talking to you guys and i i really appreciate you i'm glad this is your first one yeah absolutely thank you so much for having thank you us so much yeah it was a real joy was a real joy. I love that conversation. I just think they're marvelous. The Chapin sisters, they are so ridiculously gifted and so incredibly nice. That was just a very uh, very positive experience all the way around. They're the best. Uh, their new single, Bergen Street, which we're going to play uh, the full thing in a second here. You're going to hear the whole song. Uh, but go buy it. Go buy it and uh, buy all their stuff. Reverse Engineer Go back in time without actually going back in time. Go to thechapinsisters.com and buy their albums. There's a bunch of them, and they're all fantastic. There's a couple EPs, and uh, those are fantastic too. I just love them, and I know you will too. Your life will be so much richer with the Chapin Sisters in it. AlexGreenOnline.com is where you need to go to find out what's happening with me. There is a tour date, not tour dates, but a tour date coming up in uh, Berkeley. It's on May 10th at Pegasus Books on Shattuck Avenue in Berkeley, California. Stop by. I'll be interviewing the author Suki Jones, whose new memoir, See Swallow Me, is out now. It's a memoir about addiction, recovery, and redemption. So do come by. It's free. I'll be in conversation with Suki Jones, and I believe... Will there be snacks? I don't know. I believe there should be snacks. <laughs> I don't want to commit and say there will be snacks, but I believe there should be. So if there aren't, just remember I said there, you know, there should have been. <laughs> How about that for getting off off the cookie hook? Uh, Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one that you use, subscribe, rate, and review, and tell all your friends. You can follow me on Twitter at Embers Editor. You can follow me on Instagram at Embers Podcast. You can also email me, editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. Let's close the show with a longer listen to Bergen Street by the Chapin Sisters. Enjoy it, and thank you as always for listening to Stereo Embers, the podcast only right here on Bombshell Radio. Goodbye, old 
Sign the way. 